You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly arts show. My name is Diana Moxon. Now, given that I am generally not a fan of musical theatre, no one is more surprised than me that on this week's show, we explore not one, but two musicals which are being staged in Columbia. Later in the show, we'll be delving into the musical Pippin, the story of a prince who yearns to find passion and adventure, which opens at the Stevens College Playhouse Theatre on May the 3rd. But before we go in search of meaning and purpose with young Pippin, we are, to quote the jam, going underground. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Kentucky Cave Wars were in full swing. It was a time of underhand tactics and bitter competition to lure tourist dollars away from the already famous Mammoth Cave and divert them to other private show caves. One plucky young cave explorer by the name of Floyd Collins had spent a decade or more exploring the Flint Ridge cave system, hoping to make himself a fortune by finding a cave that he could market to tourists. In the middle of winter on January the 30th, 1925, while he was trying to find a new entrance to Crystal Cave, or Sand Cave as it was known to the media, 37-year-old Floyd Collins got stuck in a narrow tunnel 55 feet below ground with his left foot wedged beneath a fallen stone. The rescue operation to save Collins was a huge media sensation across the country and made use of the day's new technology. It was the first time that radio, an extended radio broadcast, had been used for anything other than a political event. The first transatlantic telephone call was placed from Cave City, Kentucky. Six movie studios were vying for the story and a young pilot called Charles Lindbergh was hired to fly photographs back to the world's press. This, then, is the true story behind Floyd Collins, a bluegrass musical and an ambitious opening production for Maplewood Barnes' 2019 season. Here to tell us more about the story and the musical it inspired are Mark Baumgartner, making his Speaking of the Arts debut, I do believe. No, I was on the Stable Boys. Uh, oh, yes, <laughs> the Stable Boys. Okay, there you go. Uh, <laughs> as a solo actor. Yes, and sir. this still illustrious Ed Hansen returning <laughs> after a protracted absence to our Velveteen casting that, couch. That illustriousness <laughs> is from my cold cream that I use every night. Well, it's working wonderfully. Hello, oh, gentlemen. <laughs> Hello. So a cheery little number to open the season then. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, this is my first barn show that I've done since the 90s. So uh, it's it's just interesting. I'm the first time I've worked in the new the new barn, mm. which is not so new anymore. But, uh, uh, you know, they, the original one burned. And, and so uh, it's just been a real interesting um, return to that that life of working in outdoor theater and and uh yeah and the the show is kind of amazing it's uh the music was written by Adam Gattel, who is Richard Rodgers' grandson. I don't know if you had picked that up in mm-hmm. your in your research or not. Also wrote uh, The Light in the Piazza. The music's really demanding. And yes. uh, while it's um, billed as a bluegrass musical, it's very complex. And uh, lots of unusual key shifts and um, time signature shifts. And so it's it's really been challenging um, to work on the work on the music aspect of it. And uh, we've got two sets. 
one indoors and one outdoors. So far, we've only used the indoor set (laughs) because it's been cold and rainy. But the cast has worked really, really hard. And I think it's really good to challenge uh, actors with a difficult piece once in a while. But now you opened on Wednesday, so this will be your third performance tonight. How has the reaction been so far? Oh, it's seemed to be very positive. I mean, um, the folks that come up to me after the show have been nothing but complimentary and have really enjoyed it. And and uh, like you said, it's challenged them. I mean, they'll come up and say, boy, that was a, a little dark, but I really enjoyed it. It really moved me. So I guess we're doing something right. Uh, did you know this true story of Floyd Collins before you happened upon the musical? I, I did not. No. I, as a matter of fact, I didn't actually attend the auditions because the original production dates opened Easter weekend, and I have a church music job, and so that wasn't going to be possible for me. And they actually had so many people that said, oh, I would love to do the show, but uh, that they changed the production dates. And so they called me and said, would you consider doing this show? For some reason, they seemed to think that I was right for this role. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, they, then they called me and said... Uh, Hey, Ed's going to be in the show. And I said, okay, if Ed's in, I'm in. I'm, I'm playing Lee Collins. I'm playing Floyd's father. Right. And, and Mark is Floyd. And so, um, and I don't know if you knew that Mark and I have known each other for a really long time. But I'll, I'll yeah. let Mark tell that story if you'd like. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I've known Ed for, well, almost 40 years. Rolling in on 40 years. He was my choir and drama teacher since I was oh, seven wow. or eight years old. Oh. All the way through school. so Which is amazing, Ed, because you're only 39. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really not adding up at all. Mark was in utero with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we've, he, he directed me in all my high school plays. And and uh, so, yeah, it's then after all those years, this is the first time we've actually been able to perform together. So it, that was... That was a very big draw for me to take this part. Well, now, at first glance, and even at second or third glance, the story of Floyd Collins does seem like an odd choice for a musical. So what does a musical version do that a traditional play cannot achieve? Why turn it into a musical? Well, I, uh, for me, because the way the play works is once Floyd's caught in his position in the cave, I never leave the stage. I'm on the stage the entire play, and the things that are going on around me are actually going on above ground. And so I only interact with a couple of actors face-to-face in the whole show. And so I feel like a lot of what Floyd is going through is all so internal that you don't get that unless he's presenting it through music. And so I, I don't know if you would get the depth into his character without without it being a musical. Like in Shakespeare, they'd have soliloquies. So Correct. you've got the musical version of a soliloquy. Exactly. And it, expressing things that words alone can't say yes. with music. Exactly. So now you are playing the eponymous Floyd Collins. Yes. Ed, like you said, you're playing mm-hmm. Floyd's often devout and somewhat opportunistic father, True. Lee Collins. <laughs> and so, Mark, before you set the theatrical opening scene for us, let's get in the mood. Let's play the opening prologue entitled The Ballad of Floyd Collins. Deep in the land of the hollows and creeks If and you get lost, you get lost for weeks Listen to the tale of a man who got lost A hundred feet under the winter frost Now Floyd was a reasoning man He knew what he wanted and he had a plan just as smart as he was brave, he was gonna find him the perfect 
Irish fortune under the ground. Sure enough, his fortune is what he found. And that was the ballad of Floyd Collins from the original off-Broadway recording. So, Mark, talk us through the first few minutes of the play because it wastes no time getting straight to the crux of the tale. Yeah, so like the first, what, eight minutes, nine, ten minutes of the show, the guys come out and do the ballad at the beginning and then I walk out and I'm trying to, I, I have climbed down into this cave and I'm looking for my fortune and uh, I have about an eight-minute song right off the top of the show running around all over the stage all by myself <laughs> and uh, goes right into another two-minute song and then and then I get stuck and uh yeah it's I'm glad to sit down at the end of that <laughs> I'm glad to be stuck at the end of that song so. well exactly so talk to me about the challenges of acting whilst lying mostly motionless in a tiny space you know that was actually a really appealing factor of this part because I mean you're kind of I'm pretty expressive with my hands and and when I when I'm talking and and performing so my legs are supposed to be locked in place my arms are supposed to be locked in place and for the most part when I'm speaking to someone they're not actually with me they're in the cave next to me and talking to me so I can't even look at the actor I'm speaking with so it's all right in my face and in my voice and I thought that's a very interesting challenge. Now, and, are you lying or are you kind of standing? Uh, well, let me tell you about that. <laughs> so, when we first designed the set, it was uh, an angled board, and I was laying back and just standing up kind of in an angle, and we did our first rehearsals with that, and about 20 minutes in, my knees started shaking, and I'm like, I don't think I'm going to make it. And so, we, we talked about it, and we redesigned it a little bit, and they put a little seat there now, so I can sit down a little bit and it's much much more comfortable he also has cushions for his lumbar region <laughs> my lumbar region i have a little pill yeah yeah we don't say back <laughs> it's my lumbar it's lumbar that health and safety have been through to sort that out for you but now you're singing and i mean how how trapped are you how much space have you got to well i mean it's, and it's, the, the the set's more impressionistic it's not you know we don't we didn't actually build rocks in a cave it's all kind of boards and wood and so it's it's fairly open so it's you know it's left to your imagination to how deep that is but in my mind i'm trying to keep in you know in my mind that i'm trapped in this tiny little area so i try to keep everything locked in pretty tight so are you kind of below everybody else is everybody in the stage set you're below and they're they're above you or are they side by side well we have a few different levels but for the most part, I'm sitting on the ground, and the and the cast is out in front, so which represents the above ground. So, yeah. Ed, now you are pious and self-absorbed father to the hapless. Oh my! What about his character? Talking about me personally. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stay. I've had enough. I believe. <laughs> Let's stay in character. <laughs> as well as you have another child, Homer, and then you have the slightly odd Nelly. Tell us about your family and what your children say about your style of fathering. Um, you know, um, I, I've, this almost sounds like I, I um, am 
dissing my father a little bit, disrespecting my father. But I did channel a lot of my father into this character because my father was raised on a Minnesota farm and was of that old school of discipline. And if a parent says something, then the child needs to immediately toe the line. Lee is of a, a past generation, really. And, and his children are wanting to carve out their own niche in life. And he thinks that what they ought to be doing is what he did, which was to do what his dad told him to do and to farm. And uh, Lee is very disappointed that Floyd, who he pictures as his golden boy, really, uh, uh, seems to be absolutely obsessed with this business of caving. His son, Homer, just wants to get out of Kentucky. He's been saving up his money, and he wants to buy an automobile so he can leave. Uh, His daughter, Nellie, is uh, just recently out of an asylum. She's had all kinds of mental health issues. Uh, We don't really know how his first wife died, but she died when the boys were really little, and Nellie was just a baby. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's remarried this woman who is equally as pious as he is and um, he's very much uh, of the evangelical cut where he thinks that if something is unsolvable initially that what you have to do is just be devout and pray and all will be well instead of uh, figuring out on your own what it is that you need to need to do to make things right and so the kids are rebellious but they also desperately want their father's approval and I, I also remember as a small child desperately wanting my father's approval, even though he was the disciplinarian and spanked us with a belt and, you know, those types of things. It was that, that kind of old school discipline. But I, I really did want to please him. And the songs hearken to that a lot. They talk about Paul. That's what they call him. They talk about Paul all the time and, and uh, wishing that he could understand them better and could could support them in their dreams for what they want for their future. So I think Lee is a very flawed individual, but at the same time, I, I, I see him as a very real person. I'm, I'm not doing a caricature of somebody at all. I just want him to, to really be uh, someone that everybody may have known um, or still knows. He doesn't come across particularly well. You know, he doesn't, but he has his tender moments, too. And, and uh, credit Nathan, uh, our director for that, he he has one scene where he just lets me come out and just break down and weep on a log. And I never say anything, but at the, when it's looking pretty, pretty bad that they're not going to be able to get Floyd out. And you can see that he loves his, his son desperately, and he feels like God has let him down. Now, early on, relatively, and holding true to the original story, we meet Skeets Miller, a newspaper reporter of small stature from the Courier-Journal in Louisville. And, Mark, tell us about his role in the saga of Floyd Collins. Well, Skeets showed up, and he was kind of just the cub reporter and had come in. They didn't have anybody else to send down. And so Skeets comes down and thinks this is going to be his big break. And when he gets there, he's the smallest person around, and he kind of wants this story, so he gets down in the cave, and he's the only one that can actually fit through the opening and get down to Floyd. And so that's kind of Floyd's one connection to the outside world is this little reporter that comes down, and she comes down and interviews him. And in, in real life, Skeets, once this was all over, uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for this story. So when it was Yeah, Mark, sudden, Mark let a little she slip in there because Mary Shaw yeah, is sorry. actually I playing Skeets. That that's that's one, tough. Yeah. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so while I was very happy to see that Maplewood Barn had reworked the casting list to redress the gender imbalance because the original cast suggests 11 men and two women. So was that a conscious decision or was it based on who showed up for auditions? 
Well, I, mean, I think it's a combination of both. I, th- I think the barn in the last few years has been doing a lot more gender balance mm-hmm. of their shows, uh, particularly with the Shakespeare. They've been, um, you know, casting women in, in traditional men's role. I think the Julius Caesar that they did several years ago was was almost all women. Mm-hmm. So I, I think they're they're really working at, at trying to create more balance there. And I think that that was a conscious effort on their part when they saw you know, in the presentation mm-hmm. that, that Nathan brought to them about let's do Floyd Collins, because Nathan is obsessed with the show, mm-hmm. they saw that imbalance and and uh, Nathan assured them that he was going to work to to create that. Carmichael, uh, who is uh, a head of the Kentucky Rock and Asphalt Company, comes to uh, dig a shaft to try to reach Floyd, and that's also being played by Heather Hatton. So uh, another... And Mary another Shaw little... is playing Skeets Miller. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. So we've, we've got uh, several women playing major men's roles in the show. Now, the whole story pivots around not only Floyd being trapped, but also the shameless exploitation of the situation, even by members of his own family, to cash in on his misfortune. So tell us what's happening above ground as Floyd is suffering below. Well, it's it's almost, and they even describe it in the show, it's almost like a carnival. First of all, folks from the community come all together and they're wanting to help Floyd out. But once the media starts coming in and the word starts getting out, there's vendors setting up booths and fireworks. I mean, there's it just turns into a big show. And, you know, and like Floyd you is unaware of any yeah, of it. Yeah, I have no idea. And they so. say that somewhere between, depending on which one, what reports you read, between ten and 50,000 people were just camping out. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it was this giant circus. Like a Woodstock. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Amazing. And then photographs were being flown all over the world. Mm-hmm. And it was just, and meanwhile... Or Floyd is just stuck down below, not knowing that any of dark, this is so. going on. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit at the beginning, or you started talking about the music in it. And it's not a musical with catchy tunes or, you know, like earworm choruses. Stephen Sondheim said he thought it was the best musical written for 25 years. Critics were a little bit more mixed about it. I found one... Well, there were many, but it was in London relatively recently. And the Independent wrote, The twang of country music is warped and darkened by operatic atonality. Bluegrass meets Bartok. The ravishing melodic lines go on long chromatic quests as the characters unfold their feelings. So, Exactly. um, (laughs) I have to be honest, I kind of found it hard to listen to. Because he, you don't, he doesn't resolve. You don't know where it's going, and there's no little catchy chorus that you can come back to. So, how hard was it to learn this compared to other musicals? Oh, <laughs> it's, it is. I, I've been singing and playing music for almost forty years, and this is by far and away the most difficult music I've ever, I've ever tried to learn. Well, and I, you know, I've done a lot of Sondheim and and, uh, while Sondheim is is really challenging, it is more melodic Mm -hmm. than what you've got here. Now, the the Ballad of Floyd Collins, I think, is is probably the the, the catchiest Mm -hmm. uh, of the tunes. One of the ones that I sing heart and hand is fairly melodic, but Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, it's a very challenging show. And and, uh, the harmonics in it are really tight. And sometimes you're listening to the background of, of what's going on in the orchestra and you're kind of thinking to yourself why did he think that this goes with that <laughs> right you know it's just um, but it, that's part of the darkness of it and, mm-hmm. and part of the uh, I wouldn't necessarily say Bartok I'd say Mahler mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really it's and, really uh, tone bending sometimes and, and what I'll say is 
of course, I had the same reaction when I first listened to it. I'm like, there's not much to grab onto. But I think in context, when you're watching the show and you're seeing the characters on stage and they're presenting the music to it, it all kind of fits into place and makes sense. And it's this beautiful, beautiful thing that you're watching. <laughs> kind of atonal music, mm-hmm. but all together, it's, it's right. a gorgeous little piece. So. Yeah, it didn't sound like it was going to be an easy thing to learn listening to it. <laughs> You, you just don't know where it's going to go next. There's right. going to be these winding vocal lines and, say, semi-operatic and atonality. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, as you said, it was written by Adam Gettle, and then Tina Landau wrote the, um, right. the script for mm-hmm. it. And, it. and when it premiered in 1994, it did get mixed reviews. New York Magazine said, this is the original and daring musical of our day, a powerhouse. And the New York Times said um, it was kind of, the text was swamped by generic billboard dialogue, and Mr. Gettle's lyrics evoke not so much specific characters as abstract sentiments. So <laughs> <laughs> people can make their, their own mind up. Now, I imagine, Mark, as you're getting into the mindset of Floyd. I mean, when I, when I read the script, I felt incredibly claustrophobic. Yes. So how do you feel coming out of it? I mean, are you stressed by the end of it as an actor when oh, you've been in his position for yeah, two I hours? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is exhausting, really. But, you know, I mean, people think, oh, you get to sit there all night. You, you're fine. I'm like, no, I mean, I am mentally and physically exhausted by the end of this because it, to put yourself in and to keep yourself focus you know i i can't look at any of the other actors on stage when they're acting around i have to keep my mind in this tiny little place the whole time and i i mean there's some big emotions that happen in this and yeah it it it's going to take me a while to recover from all this i think when it's done just mentally like it's 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 very difficult to do. I mean, you've done two nights. So you, do you find yourself kind of like your heart sinking as it gets closer to? No, 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 night? no. I, I am. <laughs> well, trust me. I am having as dark as this is and as difficult as the music is and everything. I am having a blast working with this cast and crew. I mean, everybody is wonderful. Everybody, we show up and everybody is pleasant. Everybody, I think we're all in the same boat, I think is what happened. But but um, no, I, I I look forward to it every night. And it's it's mentally I'll be be better when it's over, but I'm going to really miss everybody when it's done because I've had a great time. Have you ever been caving? Oh, um, I try to stay far, far away. I, I say, would you go now? <laughs> um, no. I, uh, I, I, I freak out when I go in the big tourist caves with the... With the walkways and everything, I, I get panicky. So no, I I will never ever put myself in this position. <laughs> now, as this is an easily googleable story, I don't think I need to issue a spoiler alert to say that it does not end well for Floyd. <laughs> when they finally reached him on February the seventeenth, he had already died of exposure, probably around February the thirteenth, I guess. And in this play, that is where we leave him. But. What happens next is truly macabre and is another musical waiting to be written. So with Colin's body remaining in the cave, because they couldn't really get him out, Mm. funeral services were held on the surface. But there was a rumour that the whole episode had been a money-making hoax. So two months later, the family managed to recover the body by digging a new tunnel to the opposite side of the cave passage. And Floyd was buried in the burial ground of the Collins family farm near Crystal Cave on April the 24th, 1925. However, four years later in 1927, Floyd Collins' father, Lee Collins- I'm a sweetie. (laughs) Sold the homestead and cave 
And the new owner, who was a dentist, disinterred Colin's body and put it in a glass-topped coffin and exhibited it in Crystal Cave for the purpose of attracting more visitors. Then, on the night of March 19th, 1929, the body was stolen and recovered nearby in a, in a field a bit later on. But the injured leg, left leg was missing. So then, once the body was recovered, the remains were kept in a secluded port part of Crystal Cave in a 1,200-pound chained casket with a glass cover under a metal lid so that you could lift the lid up and view his remains. And over the years, he was patched up several times, including with wax. Um, and then in 1961, Crystal Cave was purchased by Mammoth Cave National Park, and it was closed to tourists. Meanwhile, the Collins family had been suing the federal government to get Floyd's body back. And even though the National Park Service officials agreed, local opposition had stymied attempts to move Floyd. But finally, in 1989, so 64 years later, the National Park Service reinterred him at Mammoth Cave Baptist Church Cemetery in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. And it took a team of 15 men three days to remove the casket and tombstone from the cave. Now, isn't that another musical waiting to be written? Well, I think that's Floyd Collins Part 2 coming out next year. <laughs> They're just going to drag my body around the stage. It'll be like Weekend at Bernie's. Floyd Collins, the, af <laughs> the aftermath. And if anyone is curious about the story and wants to know more, there is a book called Trapped, the story of Floyd Collins by Robert Murray and Roger Bruckner. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming in to tell us about Floyd Collins. The Maplewood Barn production of Floyd Collins, a bluegrass musical, is on this weekend and next. And depending on the weather, the production may be in the barn or outside. Tickets are $12 and you can get those by going to maplewoodbarn.com or at the box office, which opens at 7 p.m. on show nights. And the show starts at 8 p.m., including Sunday nights. It's not a matinee, Correct. it's a Sunday night show. Thank you so much, Ed Hansen. You're Mark so Bamba. welcome. Thank I will you. say if, if it's playing inside, very limited seating. If it's playing outside, plenty of seating. So kind of pay attention to whether or oh, not right. the weather is going to allow us to be outside. Yeah. Probably outside tonight, right? It's a nice night tonight. I don't know because it's maybe too soggy. Yeah. I just don't know. <laughs> You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be back with director Carol Schuberg and musical director Trent Rash, whose production of the musical Pippin opens at Stevens College Playhouse Theatre next week. Stay with us for more music and another peek behind the scenes. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. My next guests, Trent Rash. Carol Schubert are the musical director and director respectively for Pippin, the closing show of the 2018-19 season at the Stevens College Playhouse Theatre. Now, I confess that I had never heard of the musical, but my husband said that when he was a child, it was one of the musical choices that everyone could agree on when the family was on a long car ride, the other choice being the Beatles. It tells the story of Pippin, a young prince who yearns to find passion and adventure, but like all good stories, things go wrong before they go right. Join us, leave your field to flower. Join us, leave your cheese to sour.
Hello, Trent Rash and Carol Schuberg. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Now, as I said at the top of the show, I am not a fan of musicals, but I think Pippin is one of the rare ones that wins me over. I have been listening to it all week and I totally love it. There is so much to love about it. It's super catchy tunes. It's mm-hmm. hilarious. There's magical storytelling. We're kind of complicit as in the audience. And I'm surprised that this isn't a musical that rolls through every company every other year. Have I just not been paying attention? Or is this the first time it's been done in Columbia for a long while? It has been. A, well, actually, it was done at a high school within the last five years. But it, other than that, I don't think it had been done for a while. Which is kind of amazing. Right. And it was on tour, the 2013 mm-hmm. revival. Yeah. It passed through a lot, you know, in say, Lewis and throughout, but uh, I wish I'd seen that. Yeah. So the musical opens by introducing us to a performance troupe led by a character who is simply called the leading player, mm-hmm. who tells us that we are going to see the story of Pippin being played by an actor who is new to the role, and that this young prince is on search for meaning and significance. So give us a synopsis of the show from there. Yes. So Pippin, who's now returned home and is looking for fulfillment and meaning, takes a journey led by that leading player in her troupe. And he tries out war, he tries out politics, he tries out wonderful adventures with women and all kinds of exotic, you know, journeys. And he still doesn't find what he's looking for. And as we go into the second act, he meets this Catherine, who it's ordinary life, and he feels like, well, is this enough for him? And at first, he he rebels against that even too. And as his journey proceeds, he actually learns to love and trust his heart, and realizes even though it might not be perfect. This is what he's always been searching for. And mm-hmm. uh, it's exciting because as the troop of players lead him, you know, they're, they're actually leading him to a much darker ending, which he, you know, almost chooses as the big climax that the leading player so wants him to choose, which I won't give away. But he instead chooses from his heart. So it's a beautiful message. Um, and, I, and I love what Stephen Schwartz has done with the music. And we're doing it in the style of Bob Fosse. Oh, I was going to ask you that, okay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I got to work with Gwen Verdon on developing the show Fosse and then Chet Walker, who then choreographed the revival in 2013. So I've been able to really work in that Fosse world and impart it to all the students. And uh, we're having a great time mm-hmm. with it. Now, we opened the show with a short clip from Magic To Do, which is from the new Broadway cast recording of Pippin and it was a song which opens the show and welcomes the audience straight into this slightly strange world where we are complicit in the performance so talk a little bit about this lack of a fourth wall as a component mm-hmm. of the musical mm-hmm. yeah the, the leading player often um, is speaking directly to the audience as does Pippin and, Absolutely. and a number of the other characters yeah. at various times and I, I because the whole, the whole idea is that it's a show within a show mm-hmm. um, so it's this sort of meta idea that, that, is, this, that is hanging out there as well well, so that they they're recognizing that we are performing for people, and and there you are, you are you are the audience. Tonight's performance, as they and they talk directly, the, they come right down to the house, and I have them look right in the eyes of the audience, and we call it the direct address, inviting them who wants to join us on this magical journey. So it's very evocative, yes. Mm-hmm. And I love how sometimes the leading player pops up to correct lines oh, when yes. they, when they act, when Catherine, the the widow yes. who he falls in love with, has got it wrong, exactly. And then he'll, she'll pop back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's always lurking. <laughs> The leading player's watching, and as Catherine really 
starts deviating from the script, yeah, the leading player mm-hmm. is right on her. So she's more like an MC kind of for Absolutely. the whole proceedings. Mm-hmm. So this idea was used a lot by Brecht, the German playwright, who wanted the mm-hmm. audience to understand intellectually that the characters' dilemmas, understand them intellectually rather than being kind of emotionally empathizing with them. But the underlying message of Pippin has such resonance, I think, in this age of everyone seeking celebrity and wanting to be extraordinary, mm-hmm. that you really can't help but feel an emotional attachment to Pippin, even though we're kind of being told, like, this is a play within a play, this isn't really real. So are we living in an age of Pippin? I tell you, I think we really are. People are wanting celebrities so quickly and not having to really go through what it takes to actually, you know, journey to a place where you've got talent and where you're going to practice and rehearse its immediacy like that and and Pippin really is searching mm-hmm. for this extraordinary mm-hmm. life you know why can't it all be shiny and had plumes and you know Stephen Schwartz's favorite line in the show is I thought there'd be more plumes when he gets disenchanted you know with serving with in the war. battle mm-hmm. yeah so I think it's very relevant for, for what's happening right now right today in the age of social media and everything yes. so immediate mm-hmm. absolutely there's one line where they say he lives his life in superlatives <laughs> yes <laughs> which he mm-hmm. he does everything has to be he says i'm extraordinary i need an extraordinary do extraordinary things i need an extraordinary life exactly exactly uh, dealing with the ordinary is tough is very tough for him and he he rejects it in fact you know Mm -hmm. if it's not extraordinary and and until he finally realizes what 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 the meaning of true love and true life is let's listen to another song from the show this is corner of the sky Hmm. sung by matthew james thomas again from the new broadway cast recording its season everything has its time show me a reason and i'll soon show you a rhyme cats fit on the windowsill children fit in the snow so why do i feel i don't fit in anywhere i go Daydreams, every man has his goal. People like the way dreams have us sticking to the soul. Thunderclouds have their lightning, nightingales have their song. And don't you see, I want my life to be something more than long. Rivers belong where they can ramble, eagles belong where they can fly. I've got to be where my spirit can run free Gotta find my corner of the sky So many men seem destined to settle for something small But I won't rest until I know I'll have it all So don't ask where I'm going, just listen when I'm gone Far away you'll hear me singing 
softly to the dawn Rivers belong where they can ramble Eagles belong where they can That was Matthew James Thomas singing Corner of the Sky from the new Broadway cast recording of Pippin. Now, Pippin was first produced in 1972 and choreographed by the great Bob Fosse. Think Cabaret, Chicago and Jazz Hands. Um, and it won five Tony Awards and it ran for five years, after which no one attempted to remount the show on Broadway until 2013 when it returned to win four Tonys under the direction of Diane Paulus, who turned it into a Cirque du Soleil style extravaganza. So tell us about the Stevens production. You said you're more Fosse than Paulus, but uh, what mm-hmm. are the differences? But what we are doing, we've set it in a sideshow carnival mm-hmm. circus atmosphere. So we are really combining the original with Diane Paulus's. And what we've done, too, is our characters are sort of each very odd, sort of wonderful, unique sideshow characters. We've had them each define their, their players in the troupe. And we've got like a single ring circus in our set, you know, so painted on the floor. So we have combined, I feel mm-hmm. like, both of those, those productions um, uh, and again, I, I, I love the Fosse style, so we've really, you know, infused the work with that. But we've got some wonderfully talented troops, players in our troupe. We've got a hula poop artist, we've mm-hmm. got a flag spinner, we've got acrobats, we've got gymnasts. So we've got a lot of those circus elements, you know, throughout mm-hmm. the show too. So we are we're having a blast. Trent, you were saying earlier that you'd actually seen the 2013 revival on Broadway. Oh, I no, sadly I had not. Oh, you have yeah. not. Okay. No. I, I got wish. to see it. Yeah, I got yeah. to see it twice. Oh, you saw it, Yes, Carol. yes. Tell Loved us about it. that. Oh, it was incredible. Really, really incredible. Um, the woman who put together all the Cirque du Soleil things, Daisy, is incredible. And those performers, you know, literally were flying on webs. We wish we could hang some of that in our, our production. Of, we're not able to, but we do have those circus elements. And then Chet Walker infused the Fosse-style choreography with it. So when you... Uh, when that opening curtain comes up, they are just, it's a, it's a circus extravaganza, and it's so exciting. And throughout the show, you know, Pippin was doing these feats, you know, flying, you know, from one person to the other. And even Bertha, the character, was up on a trapeze that was flying, and, and leading player flew on a trapeze. So they utilized some incredible elements. They were able to hang, and, and they've had tremendous, you know, circus performers who've been doing it their whole lives. Now, were they, were they circus performers who trained? to become actors for the role or were they actors who trained to become acrobats? The, the acrobats and circus performers were circus performers from the time they mm-hmm. were about three years old and then came into, you know, for many of them it was of course their first Broadway show and then I talked to Chet in fact extensively before coming here and throughout our process here and he said then they did hire you know dancers to accommodate you know the, the, the more difficult choreography, the Fosse choreography but those circus performers, you know, this was their first time, some of them doing a show 
show and mm-hmm. doing a Broadway show. So everybody sort of came together with their their highest talent, and and to it was amazing that show. How did you get access to Chet? I mean, do you know so, him of old? Oh yes, Chet and I did a production of a chorus line. We're like brother and sister. I know him since the early '80s, and we we've worked on several projects together. So in fact, we met in person before I came out to Stevens because this semester I'm here as the guest artist, visiting guest artist, and so living in New York, you know, he and I have worked together on several things and we've got some projects coming up. So he was incredible. Uh, I just want to pop in and say I came to New York to do some pre-production with Carol and I went to see The Prom, uh, which was a great show. And she's like, oh, well, tell Angie I said hello because my my friend is the associate music director. So I got to go backstage and Angie Angie Shore was in the show. And I said, Carol says hi. And she says, oh, Shuby, I love Shuby. (laughs) So Carol knows a lot of people. This is so amazing that you're here in Columbia to do this. Oh, I love it. Yeah, this is my second semester here. I was here in 2017, and then uh, Gail Madrosian, she invited me here again to Mm -hmm. be the visiting guest artist in dance. And uh, so I'm here teaching ballet and tap and modern and jazz, as well as directing and choreographing Pippin this semester. So So you are a dancer by background. uh, Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. You should see her in (laughs) rehearsal. She's doing triple pirouette. I mean, she's still got the moves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I danced on Broadway and Meet Me in St. Louis, and I toured in Cats, and I did a chorus line in Tap Dance Kid. And so throughout my career, I performed a lot, and then now I'm directing and choreographing and, and live in New York and danced, you know, a lot of shows, Broadway and tours throughout my career. Oh, my goodness. If you if you weren't already planning to go and see Pippin, now you should just drop everything else. I think I might buy tickets for every night. Oh, <laughs> it's it's going to be incredible. Oh, it's so exciting. We're, we really are having the best time. Now, the Fosse production phase famously opens with an incredibly lit disembodied jazz hands number. Is that even possible to recreate or did you opt for something completely different? We open our show differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is such an iconic beautiful opening with those those hands that are all lit in white and they had on the floor this uh, lineup of lights that l- showed light up from it and it, so it looks like just hands disembodied in space. We do, a, a, we do a nod to that in the second act as they come out for the finale because I thought I've got to have that in there somewhere. So but that was really a beautiful moment, how they opened that the original production. Absolutely. So are you kind of a Pippin scholar? Do you go all over the country producing Pippin or you're a scholar of all musical theater? You know what? I love all musical theater. I really do. But I love, love, love Pippin. But I, you know, throughout, I've just set a cabaret up at Moorhead at Concordia College, directed and choreographed that. Last summer, uh, we did Godspell up at Okoboji, the theater that Stevens, you know, the students get to go to mm-hmm. between their second and third year. So this has been a great year of Fosse stuff and Stephen Schwartz stuff for me, mm-hmm. having right. done all those shows this year. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Now, Bob Fosse famously kicked the composer Stephen Schwartz out of the 1972 production when Schwartz audaciously suggested that Fosse should choreograph differently. Oh, yeah, that's, they did not get along at all. All. A good friend of mine, uh, Kevin Winkler, just wrote the, a great book called Big Deal, Bob Fosse and the American Musical Theater. And he details, there's an incredible chapter on Pippin, and it really details the fact that Fosse and Schwartz did not get along. And Fosse really won out. He, you know, his mm-hmm. concept and what he wanted to do. And he even helped with the book with Roger O'Herson, uh, rewriting it and getting, you know, more insidious darkness in there. Because as we know, Bob Fosse was obsessed with darkness and death. And he loved mm-hmm. dancing, too. So he, this was, you know, really his vision of, of the way he wanted the show to go. And ultimately, he won out. Yes. But the original vision when Stephen had first written it, because he kind of, kind of, 
uh, purloined it a little bit from one of his uh, student uh, colleagues when he was still at Carnegie mm-hmm. Mellon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very much based on, on, on medieval times, on the Middle Ages. That was what was hot at the time, going to faraway places. And when Bob Fosse came across it, he wanted it to be much more vaudeville and more burlesque because mm-hmm. that was his background. Absolutely. No, he draws from vaudeville, burlesque, even circus elements. You know, he, he really wanted all of that to be part of the fabric of the show. And, and it is. I mean, you see it. And he even used, you know, radio elements in, in the original show. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and we're trying to do an homage to that, all of that, too, mm-hmm. in the numbers, each of mm-hmm. our numbers as well. But, yeah, that was Fosse's world. He grew up in Chicago and during burlesque and vaudeville. You know, that was what his mm-hmm. fabric of his life was as well. Mm-hmm. But, but Schwartz had taken this work by Ron... I've forgotten his name now. His, his colleague, yes, his student colleague, mm-hmm. and he'd rewritten the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then he had uh, they'd made a vanity recording of it, and so that the cast had it. Mm-hmm. It got sent to a quote producer in New York, and the producer said, rang up Stephen Schwartz and said, "I think you should come. I'd like to produce this show." And so he got to New York and found that this guy lived in a one-room apartment on a five-floor walk-up in Hell's Kitchen. Had never produced anything, but by that time Schwartz had got to New York, and so he began to rework it, rewrote most of the songs, and he got an agent, and the agent was Shirley Bernstein, mm-hmm. Leonard Bernstein's mm-hmm. sister. Yes, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Oh, yes, yes. And then he got through Shirley and through Leonard. Then he basically wrote Godspell in about a three-week period. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. He, that he wrote very fast. And, and that also, you know, started downtown at a very small theater and then, you know, moved up and then had its Broadway run, too. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, Schwartz was truly, you know, he, he got lucky and was in the right place at the right time. And then when he connected mm-hmm. with Fosse yeah. for Pippin, that was... You know, quite a break. As and this well. was all before he was twenty-five years old. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, but then, say, say, he and Fossey fell out. Fossey didn't like what he was suggesting. So mm-hmm. when it came time to license the work, Schwartz took out all the Fossey improvements. Um, but in two thousand and thirteen, when it came back for the revival, he put the Fossey improvements back in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was exactly right. And I think that was, you know, and Chet Walker had worked with Fossey too on the original, and then helped produce a lot of other Fossey shows. And so I think between Chet and Diane Paulus and all of them, you know, they really came together and. And this, I thought, I thought the 2013 mm-hmm. production was terrific. I mean, because you, you really have to have that darkness in it for it to work. And um, and even the last line, you know, Fosse always wanted, you know, uh, you know, happy but trapped, you know, and 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 thought to keep that in there. Um, and mm-hmm. that was a real bone of contention with he and Schwartz. Yes. Now the leading player was famously played by Ben Vereen in the mm-hmm. 1972 production, and in 2013, Diane Paulus cast a woman as the mistress of ceremonies. So talk to me about your casting choices for the Stevens production. Yeah, sure. Well, the the the, the score for the the revival which is what we're using the 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 part has been revoiced for a female and so it is and and also we're a women's college so mm-hmm. it is a female playing the leading player mm-hmm. um played by hope Pena. and i'm not even yes. sure uh, you know if there is an option to do either or yeah yeah still with production and- like in i don't know actually yeah. um that's a good question um but it uh, i i think it works really well mm-hmm to have the leading player as a female. As, as a female. And as I talked Especially to Especially next to Pippin. Yeah. I just think mm-hmm. that, that works yeah. really well. 
And Chet said, you know, the, the leading player really is this combination of man and woman, yes. every person, yeah, combined. And, and Hope does a beautiful job. Mm-hmm. She is just incredible doing the part. It probably gives it slightly more kind of uh, dark sexual overtones when it's mm-hmm. a woman trying to mm-hmm. uh, allure, yes. And yeah. our Pippin. Pippin. Yeah, Jonathan Bugioni from New York is tremendous. Yeah, we brought we him in. We have an equity actor mm-hmm. from New York playing Pippin. I, I was wondering how many of the roles you had cast as women and how many stayed in the kind of traditional male roles like, mm-hmm. do you have a king or is it a queen it's it's rob joyan yeah, who's f- our, f- our charlemagne they, mm-hmm. they're like the king and lewis the the, the other son and mm-hmm. pippin are all men and then mm-hmm. m- mainly the rest of the cast is female yes after that yeah yeah we've got another young man in yes, our, who's in our, our course in our ensemble yeah but uh yeah rob doyan who plays a lot of the lead roles who's a professor there and head of the theater department at at stevens is tremendous as charlemagne are you in it trent i'm not was I'm that not, a tough I'm, decision? I'm, no, no, not at all. I'm, I'm, I will be waving my arms in the pit, so I'll be there. And that, that's a fun. That's also a fun role for me to do. So, so you have a live orchestra? Yes. yes. They're great. They're going to be really great. Mm-hmm. Are they all local musicians? And it's the biggest musicians? one we've had in a while. So they are all local musicians who either do other professional gigs or are educators, music educators, but are all veterans of uh, playing for Stevens. Yeah. We've had some of them in rehearsal. Our drummer, Rusty, is amazing. Yeah, our drummer is another music yep. faculty with me. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Tom Andes is playing, who is wonderful. And lots yeah. of lots of really great players. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's listen to another song from, again, from the new Broadway cast recording. This is Simple Joys, sung mm-hmm. by... By Patina Miller. Well, I sing you the story of a sorrowful lad. He had everything he wanted, didn't want what he had. He had wealth and wealth and name and fame and all of that noise. But he didn't have none of those simple joys. His life seemed purposeless and flat. Aren't you glad you don't feel like that? So he ran from all was mighty far to run out into the country where he played as a boy he knew he had to find him some simple joy he wanted some place warm and green we all could use a change of scene sweet summer A crab on the 
That was Patina Miller singing Simple Joys from the new Broadway cast recording. Carol, how amazing for the students at Stevens College that they get to work with Broadway royalty. Oh, you're so kind. That's so sweet of you to say. Well, I am loving, loving working with all the students in our crew and our band and our stage management. I'm so proud of them. I mean, they're picking up this Fosse choreography yeah. so beautifully. And we've been working them very hard. I mean, I cannot wait for you all to see it. You know, we've got five performances and and I so want you all to you know come and, and see their beautiful hard work. I can't believe that all five aren't going to be sold out. I'm going to get my tickets as soon as I get off the air. The musical comedy Pippin opens at the Stevens College Playhouse Theatre next Friday, May the 3rd, and it runs for two weekends. Evening shows start at 7.30, plus there is one 2pm matinee on Sunday the 5th of May. Tickets are $18, which is a bargain, and you can get those by going to stevens.edu slash box hyphen office, or by calling the Stevens box office on 573-876-7199. And the box office is open from 1 till 3pm, Mondays through Fridays. Trent and Carol, thank you so oh, very much for coming you. in. Thank, thank you for having us. We've got magic to do. Come That's see right. us. Thank you so very much. I will be there. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts, and before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, we will take a whistle-stop tour of some of the arts events that are going to be vying for your attention over the next seven days. Tonight is the opening reception for the new art show at the Columbia Art League entitled Icon. The reception is from 6 till 8 and it is free and open to all. At All Street Studios tonight from 6 till 9pm there is an award reception for the 76th Annual Pictures of the Year Award organised by the Reynolds Journalism Institute. This is a free event but they would like people to RSVP their attendance in advance so you can do that by going to poy.org. There are plenty of theatre options this weekend too. At Talking Horse Theatre, the musical Daddy Long Legs is in its last weekend. A beautiful story about a teenage orphan and her mysterious benefactor. Evening shows start tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 plus there is a final 2pm matinee on Sunday. At the Rheinsberger Theatre on the University of Missouri campus, the play Alice, an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, is in its final weekend. Evening shows are 7.30 tonight and tomorrow plus is a 2pm matinee on Sunday. And this is the opening weekend for the 2019 Maplewood Bar season and they're kicking off this season with Floyd Collins, a bluegrass musical. The show has a two-week run and the performances start at 8pm tonight, tomorrow and also 8pm on Sunday night. And at the Blue Note tonight, Valerie June is in concert with a blend of southern sounds, African rhythms and ambient atmospherics. The doors open at 7.30 and tickets are $20. Tomorrow afternoon at Skylark Bookshop, it is drag story time with drag queens Autumn Equinox, Beatrice Jones, Henry Damore and Lizania reading stories for children from 1 till 2 p.m. At the Daniel Boone Regional Library, there are two talks on Saturday afternoon as part of the library's annual quilt exhibit. The first one is called Wool, the Warmth of Home, and that's with Katie Hartner. And she's going to look at the history of rug hooking, and that's at 1.30. And the second talk is called Show Me Wool, the history of Missouri's wool industry. And that will be discussed by Mary Burial, and that starts at 2.45. Early evening Saturday, head to Rose Park to listen to fusion R&B band Loose Loose. They'll be on stage from 5 till 7. Locust Street Expressive Arts School will be holding its annual arts fundraiser Saturday from 6 till 9pm at the Columbia Country Club. Tickets are $20 and include hors d'oeuvres and a chance to bid on original artworks and other local donations. And you can buy tickets for that on the door. Columbia Entertainment Company has a fundraiser concert to celebrate its 40th season. And that's on Saturday night starting at 7pm. Tickets are 
$45 or $80 for a couple. Saturday night, it's the first summer fest of the season with the Brothers Osborne playing live on 9th Street. Gates open at 6 and tickets are $30 in advance. And at Jesse Hall, there's a free concert by Nigerian-American indie rapper Chidi Bang. Tickets are available at the Missouri Theatre ticket office and the concert doors open at 7. The 2019 Columbia Area Earth Day Festival will be on Sunday afternoon from 12 till 7 at Peace Park with a ton of music, entertainment, workshops, kids' activities and arts on display and on the stage. At Murray's, the New York Standard Quartet will be playing two concerts at 3.30 and 7pm on Sunday as part of the We Always Swing Jazz Series. And at the Blue Note, the Como Comedy Club presents Fortune Feimster, who made her name on Chelsea Lately and is a fast-rising star on the national comedy circuit. Her show starts at 7 and tickets are 25. Tuesday night, there is another Summerfest event, but this time at Rose Park, with performances by Shovel and Ropes and the UK's Frank Turner. Gates open at 6 and tickets are 26 in advance or 29 on the door. Wednesday night at the Blue Note, Columbia's own Diggy Splash and the Bad Decisions are playing with Mark Rabier, a.k.a. Loop Daddy Rabier. Show starts at 8 p.m. and tickets on the door at $18. Next Thursday, the Almond Betts Band will be at the Blue Note as part of their album release worldwide tour. And at Mizzou Arena, Kenny Chesney is in town next Thursday for his Songs for the Saints tour. Tickets start at $27 and you can get those from Ticketmaster.com. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Until then, stay arty, Columbia.